0: Why does Jesus react so angrily against these vendors and the money changers? Weren't those things necessary even for worship? People needed to buy the offerings, the things they would present as an offering, and exchange currency. Wasn't it that needed for the temple itself? And then how does this action correspond to the way Jesus depicts himself as meek and humble of heart? This can be a rather difficult passage to explain. It stands out. It's a passage you remember. And that, I think, is precisely the key on how to understand it. It's meant to draw our attention. I don't think we should read it as an outburst of anger, which wouldn't make a lot of sense. Jesus, Jesus had seen these people selling stuff for years, every time he went up to the temple, from the time he was a little boy. And then it wouldn't change things for very long. I mean, probably vendors would come back the following day again and occupy the same space. But what is what it does do, what Jesus' action accomplishes, it's that it stays in your memory. You retain it. It's what is called a prophetic action. It's like a prophecy conveyed in drama rather than words. It's exactly what many other prophets had done before, like Ezekiel, uh, making a hole in the wall of his house and living like an exile in the middle of the day. Or Hosea, giving symbolic names to his children. Or Jeremiah, buying a field in the midst of the Chaldean uh, conquest. So this is, sounds like a prophetic action of Jesus. It's a symbol of something. And the question then is, well, what does it symbolize? Well, it, it symbolizes the whole mission of Christ as Messiah. He came to purify our hearts. He came to purify Israel's worship. It's an act of purification of the temple, because the temple represents your soul, the soul of, of Israel. The temple is the physical space that is reserved for God alone. It reminded Israel that this was the source of their identity and what they lived for. That's what worship is for. It's meant to reconnect you with your origin and with your highest aspiration. But it can also happen that worship can be corrupted. It can lose its essence, so to say. Because Seeking God has its indirect blessings. Think of it. At the social level, for example, worship can bring stability to a society. It can bring social unity. It can uphold important moral values. It can foster art. It can create jobs. It can promote education. And then at the individual level, there's also many benefits. It can provide good connections, a social network and provide a sense of purpose and encouragement and healing. But then worship is corrupted when it ceases to be mainly about God and it's mainly about those added benefits. When God is pushed back to the side and these additional benefits take the forefront and God is gradually forgotten. God becomes a label or a code word for human flourishing. But then when that happens, even those added benefits begin to fall apart because the heart of worship is is gone. And that's what what we call the temptation of the world, is changing the glory of God for the glory of this world. The temptation of the world is about doing only what the predominant voices in society find acceptable. And avoiding all the things that these predominant voices in society would reject. In a way, it's the, the idolatry of the golden calf when Israel was on the way to the promised land. Because that idolatry wasn't quite about Israel changing God for another God, saying, I will we'll go after these other foreign gods. Rather, it was saying, no, we still worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but the." Idolatry was saying God wants to be worshipped only in the worship of this world. Only through serving the interests of this world is God glorified. So as long as it's good for our economy and our foreign policy and our image and education and social cohesion, yes, then we'll adore, we'll worship. But any goal that doesn't have to do with those Uh, It's kind of superfluous and even dangerous. Now, the temptation of the world, to me, is is one of the most nebulous and difficult to grasp because it seems very broad out there, right? But the world always has its representatives close to us, in those people close to you that kind of discourage you from walking in faith in some way. A while ago, I was reading this uh, book by the by Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist. He has a short book called A Confession, which is a sort of story of his own journey. And he says that as a young man, he began trying to follow his conscience. But then he says, every time I did follow my conscience, people around me started to laugh at me and say, you're so naive and simple. And every time I did something wrong against my conscience, people cherished it, you know, encouraged me, they said, They patted me in the back and said, that's the way to go. He says, for example, one of his aunts told him, oh, you're too simple-minded. You should have an affair with a married woman. That will help you become a man. Now, in between the lines there, you can read, you can hear something that is very characteristic of the temptation of the world. It instills fear. It tells you, if you don't listen to our advice, you'll never become a man, you'll never become a woman. You'll be alone, you'll be a failure, you'll be a loser. Someone was telling me the other day, Father, we are so busy, and even more, we are pressured to be busy. There's so much pressure today to act this way or to think this way. And it's true, we feel it, it's it's the temptation of the world. Now, the voice of the world doesn't only pressure or instill fear, it also seduces, it's seductive. It's a voice that promises comfort and perks, status, doors that open before you. Uh, I found a sort of resemblance of this voice in something that Tolkien writes in The Lord of the Rings when he's talk, speaking about Saruman, you know, the fallen wizard, and he says that Saruman, I'm quoting here, suddenly, Another voice spoke, low and melodious, its very sound and enchantment. Those who listened unwarily to that voice could seldom report the words that they heard. Mostly, they remembered only that it was a delight to hear the voice speaking. All that it said seemed wise and reasonable, and desire awoke in them by swift agreement to seem wise themselves. When others spoke, they seemed harsh and uncouth, by contrast, if they gainsayed the voice, anger was kindled in the hearts of those under the spell. Those are the words, the, that's the voice of Saruman, but it's also the voice of the world, isn't it? The, the world is seductive and has a voice that is hard to resist. But how can we resist the spell? Well, let me conclude with two takeaways, two practical recommendations. The first one is, recognize that there is a temptation in the world. To recognize it is already to win half the battle. Of course, not everything out there in society is wrong, and not everything is against the gospel, for sure. Even when when you look at yourself, you recognize there's many good things in me, but you also know there's pockets of resistance to the the voice of Christ. And in the same way, there are pockets of resistance out there. There are voices that will dissuade you from growing in faith and believing truly. And that's, I think, where the reaction of Jesus is kind of firm and strong in doing this sort of getting, purifying the temple. He wants us to also purify the temple of our hearts and recognize that these voices are not always harmless. They truly can separate us from God. So can you recognize this voice at times? Are you able to discern when voices around you are okay, are good advice, good recommendations, or they can be the voice of the world? Do you recognize how they instill fear or pressure or they are seductive? Now the second thing has to do with this difficulty. Many people Tell me, well, Father, I cannot leave the world, obviously. I have my career, a, my group of friends, my social circle. God is not asking you to leave the world, but rather to think how you're going to serve God in the world, how you will see your life, not as everybody else, but as an ambassador of Christ, as someone who bears the name of the image of God and represents Christ in the world. And that's very distinctive. It's a, it's a distinctive presence, the presence of a Christian, of a Catholic. If you want if you want a good picture of what it looks like, reread the first reading we had today, the Ten Commandments. That will give you a clear idea of how we we are different from, from, from the world. We're not meant to be weird, but we're meant to be different. Our presence is distinctive. So maybe Reread that passage this week and ask yourself, reading the Ten Commandments, is this how I perceive myself? Is this what what I want to portray? In what ways does my life reflect or does not reflect this picture? May we pray. Father, help me recognize your voice. And also the voices of the world for what they are. Help me realize, Lord, when these voices create a barrier between you and me. And give me the grace of seeking your will, your plan for my life. Not to conform to the standards of everything I see around me. Because in you, Lord, I have placed my trust. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.